This is Conversation 5. Bob leaves policing to become a defense attorney when a strange character named Count Dante enters the 18th District Police Station and asks for Bob's legal assistance. Count Dante is a character from a Quentin Tarantino movie, a flamboyant time bomb who died mysteriously, but not before he started the Dojo Wars and was involved with the largest armored bank heist in U.S. history. Bob reveals never-before-told details about the heist and the Count's death. Sit back and enjoy Episode 5. Bob, take us to that moment when you break from the police force. Uh, you know, I was a policeman. I wanted to get my law degree. And then when I transferred up to the 18th District and met with, with uh, Rick Borelli and got connected with all those mob guys and, and gamblers and bookmakers, and I started making a lot of money as I, I'm just, I'm not even thinking in terms of the future. My future is right now. I'm making, I'm making tons of money. That's when Count Dante shows up there at the police station. I, I knew who he was only from reading the newspapers. In fact, that he had, I knew that he had been arrested and charged with murder for breaking into the, uh, into the Kung Fu school. Let's set the table a little bit around this. So you've got your law degree. You're a police officer. No, I, I, no, I didn't have it at that okay. time. But you're, you're a police officer at this moment in time. You've had this accident. You come back. And you were supposed to work vice. You teamed up with Borelli. The, the gambling escapades uh, mushroomed or, or really began in earnest at this moment in time. In comes this gentleman to the police station named the Count. Tell us who the Count is. Count Dante was advertised as the world's deadliest hairdresser. He was uh, he was involved with the with karate where apparently he had been banned from the tournaments because he was too brutal. Uh, he had also written a book, the black, as I remember, the Black Hand, uh, teaching people how to, you know, how to, uh, you know, pay, pretty much destroy people just using his hands. People began to believe this guy was uh, was something else in terms of, in terms of, uh, you know, a physical specimen. He was this kind of. Um not cult figure, but a, a known quantity in Chicago because there were articles about him or there were advertisements oh, ab- about him? A- absolutely. And he had a pet mountain lion. That was his pet. He had a pet mountain lion that he lived with. That, uh, Tiger, but, King but, be, yeah. Tiger King before the Tiger King. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. The, uh, he was, he, see, he was, he was connected with the people in Playboy and, and he was, he, he was known by a lot of the very interesting people in Chicago. Now but, I'm looking at a picture of Count Dante. He's a suave, handsome guy. His name, Count Juan Rafael Dante was an American martial artist figure during the sixties and seventies who claimed to do extraordinary feats such as Dim Mack. I don't know what that is. He's born John Timothy Keehan in Chicago in 1939. But you knew of him because he kind of had this cult status and he was a character on the scene and he was, what, tied into Hugh Hefner. And, 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 and we should note that the Playboy Mansion probably at this moment in time was still situated in Chicago. He's kind of this known, I wouldn't say celebrity, but a known figure. And he comes into the police station one day. He had been arrested and charged with murder for the incident there at the uh, at the Green Dragon up on Fullerton, where he had he had gone in there and ripped the door off off the hinges and gone in there and and uh, he ripped somebody's eye out. And uh, his friend Jim Konsevic, who had gone in there with him, had a spear put to him. And uh, as they ran down the street, he died. 
and they charged him with murder under the accountability statute because he had gone in there and in the the green dragon was a it wasn't a karate school it was a place where they taught people how to use maces and spears and daggers and when he went in there i think there were about 15 or 20 of his students in there and they're all armed it's like a dojo, uh, like like this is like the kind of Bruce Lee era, like a dojo in Chicago, where these guys are uh, guns are too easy for them, right? So they're they're resorting to martial arts. They train people with maces, you know, the maces with sure. their ball and chain thing, and uh, with spears and with daggers. And uh, these people were all armed when he broke in there. And and he went in he went in there with four of his students. You know what had happened was. Uh, the guy, the guy from there, had called him and called him a pussy. He had he had a couple of uh, you know a couple of schools themselves, karate schools, and he was taking students from you know from this guy. And this guy called him up and and called him a pussy. And with that, he went over there. And this guy was uh, busy training a class. So I mean, it was front page news, and it was a big splash with that. Sounds like but not only front page news, it sounds like a comedy routine. So he he he's basically siphoning out um, this other guy's uh, client tell and he gets a call and the guy calls him a pussy so he goes up there with his uh mace carriers and they go to a school where there's a bunch of guys who have all kinds of weapons and whatnot they didn't come in their arm they came in there you know these were his, these were his students with plain plain old karate and the account wasn't armed he he pulled the guy's hand out eye out with his hand when he comes into the police station you're there i was out in the street patrolling and i get a call to come into the station so Okay, you get calls all the time. I had no idea what that was. Maybe, maybe somebody needed me to do something there in that area or whatever. I came in there and as I walked, as I, as I, it was so ironic. As I walk in, you come in there at the 18th District through the back. The parking lot is in the back of the station. There's a long hallway, and you can see the front desk, you know, from the back. And as I walk in there, I see this this strange-looking character. I see this guy. Well, you saw his picture there, but he's wearing a cape and he's wearing a mesh see-through outfit. Uh, you know, where you can see uh, you can see his whole body basically. And he's got this uh, very meticulously manicured beard that has six or seven points and shapes. He's he's really an interesting looking guy, and he's a handsome guy too. Must have been quite oh, yeah, the ladies' a, man. Piercing blue eyes, as I remember, he had you know. But you know, I just see him standing there at the desk, and you know, I look at him because this guy looks like some kind of a freak. You know, he looks like some kind of a uh, you know, a, a, a just plain old character. He's dressed, dressed like a Superman or whatever. And, uh, and I walk behind the desk and the sergeant says, here, Bob, somebody wants to talk to you. And, uh, you know, I look up and I walk over and he goes, you know, he says, I'm Count Dante. He said, and I'd like to talk to you. And when he told, when he mentioned I'm Count Dante, then, I'm, then I recall, you know, his picture in the front page and I realize who he is. And he says, John Began told me he's a friend of yours. John told me that uh, that you're in law school and that you had taken the bar. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, John told me he's sure you passed it. And did you get the results yet? And I said, no. He said, well, I've been I just got arrested uh, not that long ago. And I and then I said, yeah, I remember reading that. And he said, I'd like to hire you as my attorney. And, <laughs> and I said, I'm not. I'm not an attorney yet. I said, you know, I said, I haven't got the results from the bar. He said, well, he said, I, I just, he said, uh, I just have a lot of confidence that you can help me. He so, said. so is this the first person that's ever solicited you to do legal work? 
Oh, for certainly. Absolutely. I mean, how could somebody solicit me when I'm not even a lawyer? Yeah. You know? and, yeah. And, but, and, 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 again, and to this point, had, had it ever crossed your mind that you were going to become a defense attorney or you're still just, you're in this moment of policing and the gambling and things are great. And you're not looking two inches in front of you, in front of your schedule. This is what you're doing at this moment. Actually, I had already, I had already been contacted by someone. In fact, it was John. It was, it was John Began, the kid I grew up with, who by now is a multimillionaire. Uh, John is involved in the tax shelter business with Troopin, with I know with Barry Troopin, and I think Trump too was involved with Rothschild of New York. And John, John got involved with them. He had that special license, and he was uh, he was selling tax shelters, and he had become a multimillionaire. John had John had already contacted me on somebody else who had a DUI. I had told John, okay, if I pass the bar, you know, I'll, I'll represent him. And he told this guy to go in there and get a continuance on his case. But uh, now he had now the count shows up. And uh, I, I have no idea. I never asked either the count or John how the two of them had initially met. I just know that he, he said, I'd like to hire you. And I said, uh, but what if I don't pass the bar? And he said, well, he said, you could, John tells me you have a lot of contacts and John has a lot of faith in you. And uh, he said that he thinks you could find somebody else that could help him. So he pulls out $5,000 and he said, uh, I'd, I'd like to hire you right now. I'm making a lot of money at this time, you know, but still $5,000, you know, given some stranger like this. And, and anyhow, he said, well, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to retain you. And he retains me. In fact, he said, when you get off work tonight, he said, I'd like to take you over to the Playboy Club. And that's what happened when when I finished up. I, I took a day off of uh, of doing anything else and, you know. And I went with him and his girlfriend, Krista, and I had, I had a girl, one of the girls that I was dating and I went over to the Playboy club. Is that the first and, time you'd been to the Playboy club? Oh yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, I, I never belonged to it before that. So I, kind I, of a high end exclusive invite only type of place that you, you had to, you had to get in under special circumstances or be friends with Hugh Hefner or you paid to get in. It's a private, it's a private club that I, I just had no interest. I was, I was meeting plenty of girls and we had Bush McGuire's in a couple of spots where I'm going to all the time where almost every day I'm finding somebody new. But when we went there, it was really kind of strange because all these talking to the people about, this is my friend, Bob Cooley. He's a policeman. He's in law school right now. And he says, and he's one of the toughest, he says, he's one of the toughest people I've ever met. Now, I just met him for the first time, you know, a couple hours before. But he went, he tells him, he said he was a policeman out there and I read all about him. And I think I told you, you know, when it all happened from there with him being involved in that pure layer thing and they were going to kill him and so forth and so on. We discussed that before, didn't we? No. I don't, I don't believe oh, so. Oh, because oh, this is really, really important. Absolutely. Divert away. I started running around with the count all the time. He, he would contact me two or three times a week and, you know, and we would go to the Playboy Club. We would go to other places and, and he was constantly getting into fights and starting fights and getting me involved in them too. Was he, was, was he mob related or was he, or was he just no, an no. individual he, who was kind of a one man wrecking crew and kind of he spun wanted, out? This is why, see what you're saying is interesting. He wanted all the time. I, I took him one time out with me to the Western suburbs with these people. 
And these people all knew who he was. And wow, you know, you know, and he wanted to be introduced to him and meet him. And I would not do that. I saw, I saw nothing good coming of it. And this is what's so really interesting. Tell you how bizarre this guy was. He calls me. We go to a party out there. Uh, it was at, at a motel and I'm like 55th and Lakeshore Drive. And I, I've got, I'm meeting different girls all the time at Bush McGuire's. It's a real, an absolute pickup place. And, and I'm with a girl I had just met the night before. And uh, you want to go to a party? It was on a Sunday. You want to go to a party? And uh, it was a Bears party after the football game. We go out to this place in 55th Street. When we get out of the car and we go up there, the, the areas are, this area is all black now. And we go walking through the area way to, to the motel. It's a two-story motel. And as we're walking to the area, there's a couple of black guys standing there with shotguns. And they've got there for security. We go upstairs. We go past them. We go up to the second floor. There were two separate rooms there with like an areaway just going from one to the other as you walk in there. We're the only only white people there. Count myself and the two girls we've got. I'm in one after about maybe 15, 20 minutes. He's introducing me to all the people. You know, he knew a lot of them and uh, they're all crowding around him. When he shows up, he's like the star attraction. And these are all for the, the Chicago Bears, but he's the star attraction. I I wind up in the second room where they had food and where they had, you know, the, the liquor and the beer and all the rest of it. And I'm with the girl I'm with and I hear the count in the other room, Spade. He called me Spade Cooley is what he called me. That was his nickname for me. Spade, Spade, get in here. Holy Christ. You know, I go back around. And he pulls me over next to him and he says, Spade and I'll take on all you fucking <laughs> He said, I remember oh, no. I'm, I'm standing there looking at Willie Holman. Willie Holman is about three feet in front of me. Willie Holman is about 300 pounds. One of the, but these are, these are all the bear football players and, and friends of theirs. Me and Spade will take on every one of you fucking <laughs> And thank God nobody, nobody took him up on it. Because we would have gotten the living hell beat out of us. But I mean, that that was the count. That's how nuts this guy was. Why were people drawn to him? But also, why was he so volatile and self-destructive? Well, it, it, who knows? I mean, when you say why, he, he was just he was just a strange character. Explaining the count, I'll tell you how this whole thing, this whole thing ended really in a bizarre, bizarre situation. Where we've been running around now for about three or four months. His case, when his case goes to trial now, you know, I take a bench trial. The count thought the case was being fixed. I never told him it was being fixed. I just said, you know, we'll go to trial. And I think the judge's name was Delaney. It was an Irish judge. But now hold on. That, this is the case where he and his three students went up to the torture chamber to fight these other guys. This is right, And right. this is where there was the death. So you now at this point are an attorney and you take a bench trial. And, and and we we go and I take a bench trial. And the reason I the reason I felt comfortable doing it either way if we, if we win it or if we lose it, uh, the judge was a judge I had known from when I was a policeman, just being in his court, uh, being in his court and whatever. And he seemed like a, a fair guy, and he was an Irish guy. I had seen him and some other judges at parties I was going to at these different you know judges parties. I took the case to trial and I won the case. And now we're even he's happy as can be. You 
save my life and all the rest of it. And, and we're running around until one day. No, wait, hold on. Why did you, why, why do you think you won this case? I just did the first major case that I had. And uh, I won it because I'm a terrific lawyer. That's probably why, but it's not that he killed somebody. You know, they went in there, obviously. Yes. These other, one of the guys put a spear through his friend who was then killed and charged under the accountability statute. I felt uncomfortable taking it to a jury. And as I said, because I knew the judge just to see him. And, you know, I had some conversations with him and I felt that even if he found him guilty, he wouldn't put him in prison. You know, he could maybe find him guilty of a lesser included, but that was just what I did. Was there a tacit understanding between you and the judge or this is just a feeling? No, this is a feeling that you have because you know, this judge, and you know, his temperament that you make a call to go to a bench versus jury. When I say I know him, I know him to see him and, and, you know, at, at parties and whatever, like I would see dozens of other people and, and he seemed like he was a big drinker and a happy go lucky sort. I felt that, you know, if he, if he found, even if he found him guilty, I didn't think he'd put him in prison. I just didn't think he would based on the facts of the case. The county had no prior background, had ne- never been arrested before for anything, etc. After, after I won the case, I'm getting a lot of all, all kinds of business because the county is telling everybody uh, the in fact, what the count was telling people was that I'm a mechanic. And he says he's a, mecha- he's a mechanic. He can fix anything. The count, the count to the day he died thought I fixed the case. I didn't fix the case. I just, you know, I just tried it and I won the case. Even after that, the next, you know, I started winning my juries and the rest of it. Wait, hold on. Have you resigned from the police force by this time? Oh, yeah, certainly. In fact, I, I resigned from the police department about maybe two months, three months before that. And the only reason reason I resigned when I did was because the very next day I had a case in traffic court. I had a DUI case that, you know, that, that John had referred to me in traffic court. I resigned on a Sunday and I was in court Monday as an attorney. The, uh, you know, I had no office. Did you have any hesitations? Oh, no, not at all. You have to understand I've got boxes full of money. Money is, you know, I'm making all kinds of money with the gambling, uh, with the gambling that I'm doing. And uh, no, I had no, I had no reservations at all. When I went in there, I never talked to anybody or whatever. I just tried the case and, and I figured that, you know, they, they all knew me. All those judges and all knew me as a policeman. You know, I had been in those courts even up maybe a week before, two weeks before I'm there as a policeman. Now I come walking in as an attorney. I filed my appearance. And when I walk out in the hall afterwards, Jimmy Lefevre stops me. Jimmy Lefevre was uh, the chief judge there in traffic court, was uh, Richard Lefevre. Jimmy Lefevre was his cousin who it turns out, well, I didn't know, but I find out now was his bag man. And he said to me at that stage, he said, you know, the first one was on the house. From now on, when you come in here, you see me. And, and I knew exactly what that meant. Uh, you know, you know, okay. And, and, I, and I walked away. What did that mean exactly? <laughs> you go see him and, and, you know, you go see him and you make arrangements. You know, you make arrangements to get the case, you know, to get the case thrown out. Walk me through, if you will, that the mash, like, how, how did that work exactly? Give me, give me, give me like a sample case. The whole system there was a business. A traffic court was an absolute business. They, they, I find out, I find all this out later. The judges were paying to get a courtroom there. There were in the, in the building, you had about, I'd say about maybe 15 or 20 courtrooms. There were four of them in the, on the bottom floor. You had four, four courtrooms or were what they call the major courtrooms. And there was a fifth courtroom there that was, they called a jury court. 
for all the misdemeanors, not just, you know, traffic, but all the misdemeanors and, and where they had juries. The major courtrooms were where you had the DUIs, what do you call it, the leaving the scene of an accident, the serious accidents. All the serious charges were heard, heard only in these four courtrooms. The judges actually paid a certain amount of money to get that courtroom for the month. They they paid the chief judge to get to get assigned to that courtroom because they would only have it for a month at a time. Different judges. And supposedly they did this to keep it from being corrupt. A judge would pay the chief judge to have one of those courtrooms. Was this common knowledge? Was this Clearly, this is not legal. Well, certainly it's not legal. I mean, it's not common knowledge to the world, but it's common knowledge to people, to, to, to the inner circle people. And it was common knowledge. It became common knowledge to me after I met Jimmy uh, in my when I found when I became partners with Johnny and when I when I became involved with the first ward. I became with the, involved with the people that were setting all this up. It was a it was an actual business. It came out during those trials, during the Greylord trials. You know, this information came out, but I knew I knew from the start what was going on there. What I would what I would do when I first started practicing in that court, if I had a case coming up, I would see Jimmy. I would you know get a hold of him, and uh, you know I've got a case coming up on such and such a date. He insisted he be told you know in three or four days ahead of time, and and I tell him what the case was, and uh, and he'd say what kind of a case do you? I will what, what kind of a case meaning how how strong a case do they have? Because I'd have the police reports, and I'd indicate no, it's not strong at all. There's you know they show swaying, staggering, etc. And he'd say okay, and uh, I said what do you need? And he said, and I need, you know, $100 for a minor thing, $100, and I need $50 for the policeman, and I need $20 for myself, is what he would tell me. So it would, it would, you know, it cost $170. I would go, I would go into the, uh, I would go into the court on that particular court date. I'd walk up there, the case would go to trial, I'd, they'd be found not guilty, and I'd see Jimmy afterwards. And I, I take care of him. As I said, that was the system over there. That's how it worked. But it turned out judges were paying to get those courtrooms because they would make X amount of money. And, you know, it, it became a total business. When you go into this system, are you disgusted that this is the way it goes? Or you've already been desensitized because you've been through it as a police officer. So, you know, something's afoot. You just don't know it to what degree. I, I, I myself, I would have loved it if the system was legitimate. Because I could go in there, and, and in fact, I did. I won, I won ninety over ninety five percent of my jury trials. I won cases one after the other that people dreamed about and never dreamed could be won. You know, I I wish it was straight, but it wasn't. There were certain courtrooms there, especially traffic court, and there were a couple of other courts where you know where you paid or you lost on cases you should have won, you would have lost. I mean, it was just part of the system, and I went along with it. I, I went along with it because it was a lot easier to try, you know, to try a case, uh, to try a case and dispose of it than having to, having to go to a jury and take all that time and all that effort. Uh, but I mean, that was the system. It was as corrupt as could be in certain courtrooms, not all of them, but in certain courtrooms. Anyhow, let, let's let's get back on the let's get back in the count. Afterwards, we're running around, we're having a great time. Uh, you this know, is after the said, count is uh, acquitted. Oh, after he's acquitted, yeah. After he's acquitted now and he's a free man, it's, you know, 
And, and until one day, and this has been going on now for like a year, and I'm making all kinds of great contacts in, in the money world. I'm involved now over at Faces. I'm going into Faces, of one of the nightclubs where I'm getting all kinds of business from the people, the people I'm meeting in there. I was out with the count having dinner. We're heading over to my place, and we pull up at, at Dearborn and Division. We're going north, and there's a stoplight there. As we go to stop, I'm talking with him. He's, he's got a convertible now. He's got a brown convertible with Count Dante crest on the side of it. He's he's wearing one of his goofy cape outfits. He's got a cape on. It's a cape and one of those mesh see-through outfits he's wearing. And he looks like a freak out there in the street, if you don't know who he is. And and he barely, and he taps his car. He barely taps it because he's talking to me and he's slowly slowing down. He barely taps it. And there's four guys in the car. And when he does that, he uh, he puts his hands up. He puts his hands up in the air like, you know, gee, I'm sorry. And, and two of the guys had gotten out of the car I jumped out of I jumped out of their car and headed back towards us. And one of them said something like, you fucking freak or something like that. Now, all this is taking place within about a minute, maybe not even that. And when that happens, the count jumps, just jumps straight out of the car. And uh, and I'm in the backseat. I jump after him. And suddenly the other two had gotten out of the car. Somebody must have recognized the count. Then all four of them suddenly turned around, got in the car ran through the red light and took off. We get back in the car and we drive over to my place and we go back over to my house. We and we and we go upstairs and you know and uh we're upstairs in my in my apartment and I'm on I'm on the couch sitting next to my girlfriend and John is sitting across the way and I had gotten him a glass of wine and we're sitting down and the and the count said, you know, Bob, tell her how tough you are. And, you know, because, <laughs> you know, she had said something about, you know, wow, that was, you know, you know, that was really close uh, about, you know, that, that, you know, that could have been a problem or something. And then the count says to me, tell her how tough you are, Bob. And I just said, that's okay. And he said, no, I said, tell her how tough you are. And a second time, I just, you know, like brushed him off. He came walking over towards me and with his, it was with his left hand, he like took, made a motion and I thought he broke my jaw. He hit my jaw with his, with his fingers and I thought he broke my jaw. And, you know, and I'm like in a state of shock and, and suddenly he grabs his hand and, and he says, I should cut off this hand. You uh, you saved my life. And he said, you're the closest person in the world to me. And, you know, and, and he's crying. And I'm thinking to myself, what the fuck? And then he goes over and he goes against the wall. He stands up there against the, no, not the wall, the windows. He says, get out your gun. He said, Bob, point it at me and say now before you pull the trigger and I'll stop the bullet. And I look at him. I'm thinking to myself, this guy is off the D going going straight off the deep end. He had been acting a little strange over the last maybe week or two or three. And I suspected now maybe he's doing some drugs a little bit rather than just, you know, just from drinking. That was the end of my running around with the count after that. I basically wanted to try to, you know, in fact, when he would call and let's get together, I, I avoided him and I stopped running around with him. You know, I'm, I'm worried that this guy is just, you know, losing it. So it's about maybe 
two or three months after this, I'm in the office and I get a call from Joey Casello. Now, Joey Casello was one of the guys that went to the Green Dragon with him, a big, tough Italian kid who had become a real close friend of mine. He was the only one of those other guys. I He lived out on the south side. I, and the reason I, I got real tight with him, too, because he was, he was a bookmaker himself. He was a bookmaker and into gambling. He's not running around with the Count and I when we go out, but, you know, but he's become a good friend of mine. He also owned a car dealership in partnership with the Count. He owned a car dealership over on, West, on Southwestern Avenue. And Joey calls me and he said, Bob, he said, you got to come over here. Some guys came over here. They're going to kill the Count. I said, what? He said, please take a ride over here. Now, at the dealership, this is this is this is where he kept his mountain lion now because he was getting too big. He was getting too big for the apartment, so he had the mountain lion in a huge in like a huge cage there in the what they call in the dealership. They had a building there. They had a trailer outside, and they had a real big car dealership. They had a, probably about I'd say close to about a hundred cars there on the lot. It was a huge business. And he tells me a couple of guys came in here and got out of and went in the trunk of the car, and they come in with shotguns looking for the count. And I said, who were these guys? Do you know them? And he said, yeah. He said, Pete Gucci and Sammy Anarino. And I said, you know, I don't know who they are. Who are they with? And he said, they're with Jimmy the Bomber. I said, what was this about? He said, apparently the Count extorted a, a sex shop. It was a, it was a place over there in Old Town where they uh, where they sold these uh, these toys that you can screw. You know, these they look like female dolls, big dolls, and where they sell porno films and all the rest of it. Big money makers at the time. Some Jewish guy had it and the count came in there and just basically extorted it from him. He extorted sex toys or extorted no, money he from the business. No, he, he he took over the business. The count he just decided I'm gonna take this business over. I, I didn't ask all the facts. All I know is he took he took over the guy's business and never paid him. Or maybe he told him he'd pay him and he just didn't, but he had taken over the guy's business. And it's safe to assume that these businesses are run by the, the Chicago outfit. No, no. That this guy had gone to Jimmy. Jimmy the Bomber was one of the main mob bosses. Uh, one of them from the, the old time mob bosses. And, and he still had his own crew of people. He obviously had gone to them to get, you know, to get the business back. And, you know, and they were doing what they were doing. Anyhow, what I did was I got, I went over and saw Marco and I said, you know, these guys, he says, yeah. And he says, yeah, again, they're, they're part of, uh, we'll be talking about how they ran the, the, the mob business. That's an unbelievable, you know, story in itself too. But he said, uh, I'll make contact with them and I'll arrange for you to have them meeting and you can get this straightened out. They arranged to have me meet with those two guys over at a motel over there by the racetrack over by uh, Sportsman's Park up in Cicero. There's a, a motel about maybe a block and a half uh, south of the racetrack uh, where they have a restaurant up on the second floor. So that's the place that I'm told I'm going to go meet them. Uh, anyhow, I get a hold of the count, and for the first time in his life, I saw the count was nervous. You know, he, he was real nervous. And so I take them over there. And when I go in, now it turns out I had owned my restaurant at that, by that time. I had bought Greco's by that time. These guys, as well as all kinds of others, were regular customers there. Now, I didn't know them by name. I, I had seen these guys many times over there at the restaurant. They knew who I was. I didn't know them, but they knew who I was. 
So when I go in there, I talk to Pete Gucci. I leave the count sitting with Sammy and Arino, and uh, and we go back and we talk. And he tells me, yeah, with this guy, that's what he said. This guy, you know, extorted the place, just took it over. We want and we want to be paid for it. I said, you get me the paperwork that you know and. And we'll buy it for twenty five thousand. The deal was, we'll do it. We'll buy it for twenty five thousand, and we'll get this thing straightened out. Okay. We go back over to the table, and when I get to the table, these names will be very interesting later on. Sammy Anarino is sitting there, and he's got his thumb over a fork, and he's putting his thumb over the fork, and he's telling. The, and and I hear this part of it, just as we walk up. He says, and I pull out eyes with this. And the count says to him, and I pull out eyes with these hand with my hands, and he's he's making that gesture he made in that book, in that book, the black hand. And I said, what the fuck is going? Come on, enough of this bullshit. And and I take the count, and off we go. Anyhow, we we get this we get this deal all worked out. And I think that I think that's the you know, and that's hopefully that's the end of it. And go about my business and whatever. And I I don't see the count. Again, after this, after this for a while, for it's probably been about it's probably about maybe three or four months. I'm in the office one day. I'm in fact I'm playing cards. I'm playing gin with Jerry Worksman and a couple of the others. And the count comes in. It's about maybe seven thirty, eight o'clock. And the count shows up and uh, it comes walking in the into the office. And you know, Bob, you know, can I talk to you about something? You know, and, and you know, okay. And I, I break off from the card game and I go back and into the into another section of the office and he says bob he said you're one of the closest people in my life he says the only two people i ever loved were my father and you i wasn't that crazy about my mother <laughs> and and he said and he said i you know and i want to repay you and i said you know how is that and he said i've got a situation going he said if you want to i want to get you involved and your end will be a million dollars cash I, I I don't know what he's talking about. He may be just he may just be he was a little bit high at the time. It seemed like a little bit he was a little bit high. His eyes were a little glassy. And and I just said, John, I said, you know, that's that's okay. I just assume not. Yeah, what you can do is I said, you know, you make two to million on it and if I need money I'll can borrow some from you. I said, but I'm just not I'm just not interested. In, in the thing, and I go back, and okay, with that he leaves. I go, I go. I'm doing my, I'm doing my thing, playing cards. It's, it's probably a week or two after that. I'm driving in the car, and I hear in the radio there was a robbery. They got, they thought about ten million dollars in cash from the Purelator, uh, the Purelator company. The place is about a block and a half from the police station where I first met the Count. It's over there on, uh, I think on Huron Street, which is a block from Chicago Avenue. That's where the Purelator robbery took place. That was the biggest money robbery of all time. Right away, I knew exactly what the Count was talking about. Now, I knew that somehow he was involved. Oh, okay, so be it. I never say nothing to anybody about anything. It's about two or three days after that when I'm in the office. Give me one second to kind of put a fine point on this. On October 21st, 1974, the largest cash robbery in the history of the universe is discovered early in the morning of this date at the Pure Later Armored Express Vault at 127 West Huron Street. Over $4.3 million in unmarked bills is taken from one of the vaults. Gasoline bombs are left to explode and cover up any evidence, but a lack of oxygen in the vaults causes the fires to burn out quickly. That, that's the thumbnail of it. 
Yep, that's the that's the pure letter robbery. Oh, and it, it builds from here. It builds from here. The whole the whole story and all the cast of characters. So anyhow, anyhow, it's about three days after this, when I'm up in the office, I'm, I go up in the and we had a real big office up there. There were four of us that shared the office: Van Dorf, Worksman, myself, and uh, I can't think of the the other attorney, but. And we had a waiting room that usually had anywhere from three or four to 15, 20 people in there. I come walking in there and who's sitting there, but, but Pete Gucci. I says, Pete, what are you doing here? He's one of the guys out there who's whacking people and who's doing the collecting or whatever. And, uh, and one of the, you know, he's one of the two that I met there at the, uh, at the motel. He says, I'm here to see now Jerry Worksman. Is, is, you know, is an, he's an ex U.S. attorney who's a very close friend and, and uh, who I'm playing cards with all the time in our offices. He said, I'm there to see Jerry. And, uh, oh, okay. And then he says to me, you tell your friend the count to stop calling me at uh, 4 o'clock in the morning. I got a wife and kids. And, and I says, Pete, what the fuck are you doing associating? Now, here's somebody that was, they, they were going to kill. I said, what are you doing associating with him? You got no bit. I said, nothing good is going to come of this. And I walk away. I hadn't talked to the count since that, you know, since that meeting over there at the motel a couple months before. And the, the only time I saw him was when he came to see me, you know, a couple of weeks before that telling me he'll he'll get me involved in something where my end will be a million dollars in cash it turns out he was there to see Jerry because he was the one that was involved in the pure later deal and what he had done when he saw Jerry that day he had stashed 25,000 in, in, in Jerry's couch for bond money now again I don't know any of this stuff going on you know about about this I know that the count was involved, obviously, in that based on, you know, him coming to see me and hearing there was a robbery. So anyhow, uh, it turns out, like I say, that Pete Cucci was, you know, was grabbed by the FBI and was cooperating with them. They indicated a million dollars of cash was thrown out in front of Jimmy the Bomber's house. Uh, that was supposed to be his end of it. But uh, again, okay, and now I don't know all the stuff in the background that's going on. I'm at home about maybe another two or three days after that. I get a call from the count. He, he calls me. He was living at that time. He was living in the same building as uh, Alan Ackerman over on Lakeshore Drive, up there in North North Lakeshore Drive. And he says, Bob, you know, can you come by? I got to talk to you. Right away, I figured he must, he must, have, you know, be worried now he's going to be arrested on this purulator thing. That's my thought. I go over to his place with the, and I'm taking this girl that I'm with. And when uh, we go up there and he's high as a kite. Hey, Bob, how are you? I, you know, spade, spade, spade. You know, how are you? Who's this? Oh, she's beautiful. And, uh, you know, and Krista's sitting at the kitchen table and they were drinking wine. They they had wine there. And, you know, sit down, sit down. And we sit down, pours me a glass of wine, pours a girl a glass of wine. And then the count says, hey, let's go to, let's go to, I want to show you something. And we, and I figure he wants to talk to me now. We walk into the bedroom and he says, you always thought I was a fuck up. He said. You, know, you always thought I was a fuck up, didn't you? What? He's let me show you something. He opens his closet. He's got a huge box full of money. I mean, we're talking $100 bills. Huge. I mean, we're not talking a cigar box. I'm talking about something about maybe, I'd say about, what, about three, four feet up and all the way around full of cash. 
And, you know, and okay, and I'm in my mind, you know, okay, you know, I, I, I know where some of the money is. We go back out in the front and I look for an excuse to get out of there. Okay, John, then, you know, I got to go someplace else and, and we leave. When I get home and I got two phones at home. I had, you know, the regular phone, but I had another phone that I had put in because I was practicing and I'd get a lot of calls from people to go get them bailed out of jail. And uh, he calls me on the private line and he says, you know, Bob, Spade, Spade. He said, you know that money you saw? And I said, yeah, he said, that was counterfeit money. That wasn't real money. That, and, you know, John, you know, I, I really don't care. So, you know, anyhow, I, I think nothing more of it. I hang up go about my business the next day. Next day, I get a call from Krista. Uh, it was early in the evening. And she says, you got to come over. You got to come over right now. I go over there and here's the count laying there dead on the floor. And uh, holy Christ. And, uh, you know, what happened? And she said, a couple of people came up here. She said, I mean, she wasn't talking like I'm talking. She said, you know, a couple of people came up here and uh, he told me to go in the other room and he was with them for about five, 10 minutes, he said. And uh, she said uh, he came over and and, uh, and I came out and uh, and he walked over here and then he fell over and he was dead. And uh, and when she told me that, I walk over, I walk over into the bedroom and I look in there and the box is gone. The money is gone. And here's here's the count laying there dead in the floor. This is a hot crime scene, and she called you as an attorney and a friend of his. What what's going through your mind? Do you want to get out of there, or are you in or are you in attorney mode? No, no. Well, she also told me. I, I won't tell you the name, but she also told me that uh, somebody else had somebody else had come had come down. She said, and had gotten rid of some drugs that were there in the bathroom. And what I did was I called a friend of mine, Pete Granada. Uh, he owned a funeral home out there in the south side. This is one of the places where they were burning the bodies. This is where they were getting rid of the. I, this this I had learned over a period of time. This is where the mob was, you know, was uh, cremating some of the people to get rid of them. They didn't want any more bodies to be found uh, that were being found, you know, where they had buried them. So I called. I called Pete. And I said, Pete, you got to do me a favor. What's up? I said, you got to get over, you know, and I tell him I'm over at such and such. And I gave him the address. I said, Count Dante is, uh, he's dead. And can you pick up the body and bring it back there and bring it back to the funeral home? And, and when he gets there, I, I, I waited for him to come. He, he drove down there and I said, look, can you see if you can keep an autopsy or whatever from, uh, from taking place. I said, because, you know, and I just left it in the hands of him and Krista. I just said, you know, take care of it. And that's what happened. And why no? Uh, why no autopsy? They just wanted him to, because I don't want you know I don't want there to be a problem you know a problem of any sort for Krista or for anybody else, and in particular for the person that wound up you know getting rid of those drugs over there. I just wanted to make this as clean as I could. You know, the money is gone. Obviously, uh, these mobsters came, and but, but the story gets even more interesting. You know, all the way all the way from here in terms of the people that were involved from the very beginning with this meeting in the motel. You remember, you remember I said there were two people there and there were two people there that uh, Sammy Annarino and Pete Gucci. 
Sammy Annarino uh, had become a friend of mine because uh, he was over at the restaurant and I saw him. Sammy Annarino got arrested and he got charged with having a hit kit in his trunk. What had happened was some people were trying to kill him. And when they tried to kill him, it was in a car and he wound up somehow. He, he had been shot, but he somehow, remember, he kicked the windows out of the car, I guess. And he somehow, you know, got away from them. When he was uh, taken to the hospital, they found in his trunk a, a hit kit. They thought it was a hit kit. It was just a, it was just a gun with some, with some uh, tape wrapped around the handle, and it was some chloroform, and it was uh, some handcuffs. Gee, why they thought that was a hit kit is beyond me. What is <laughs> but, a hit kit? No, they were for mob, what mob guys use when they go out to do their business. Well, in this particular case, they found they found in his trunk they found a they found a, a container, and in the container it was a gun with tape wrapped around the handle, obviously, so uh, they felt there wouldn't be fingerprints or whatever. Uh, there was chloroform, and there were some handcuffs, and there was blindfolds, and there was like a blindfold. I called it a hit kid. He had been arrested and charged with that. He asked me when he was uh, at the restaurant, he said, Bob, he said, you know, can you represent me? And I said, sure, that's not a problem. And he said, but I've got to, uh, I've got, I've got Ed Jensen. I was told I have to use him. Jimmy told me I have to use him, uh, but I want you too. I said, you know, he knows the judge, same as I do. That's not going to be a problem. He said, but I want you to represent me. I said, I won't as long as you have him. I said, he's a worthless. I'm talking about Jensen. I said, you know, he's a worthless piece of shit. And because I knew Jensen had been representing people and then setting them up, telling the mob that they were informants and getting them killed. I knew this. And uh, and I despised the guy. He did it to get, he wanted all their business. Getting people killed in, in kind of the m- most weaselish of ways by just providing information. Yes, exactly. I, I, I had told you before that I think when we talked about it, that's why I didn't represent any of their, what do you call it, their, a lot of their felons, because when I had the first burglary case that I got from Marco, I would I refused to tell him when there was an, and he, he told me, he said, if you find out somebody's giving information, you let us know. And I said, Marco, no, I don't do that, and I won't do that. Basically, well, then you won't get our business. And I said, then fine, I won't get your business. I said, but I'm just not going to do that. I don't want that in my conscience. Uh, I had made that real clear to him, and, uh, and I never never got any more any more federal work from them you know from them and I didn't want it because I wouldn't do it but I mean I just despised him as a human being and and so okay he leaves about a day or two later, he calls me and he says, Bob, can I meet you at the restaurant? And and I said, and he said, at lunchtime, though, he said, I want to meet you. I want to meet you. Can you take a ride out here? But, you know, the restaurant's about 15 miles, uh, you know, from, you know, from where I am. And uh, so he says, it's really important. So, okay, I drive out there. I sit down with him and he says, you know, Bob, will you represent me? And I I said, did you get rid of Jensen? He says, no, I've got to use him. And I said, Sam, then I, I can't represent you, and I won't. We finished lunch. I'm talking with, with Artie, with my partner. Uh, Sammy leaves. Uh, he leaves the restaurant. He goes, he goes about a block and a half away over on Western. And he gets shotgunned right there in the middle of the street. Uh, when he left there, they uh, somebody had, they had stopped traffic, and they actually somebody with a shotgun got out. And this time, they made sure he was dead. They shot him two or three times as he was crawling, crawling down the street. And but so 
ironic about all this. This is the other person who was there, you know, with the count, initially with the count. It was the very day, it was the day after that. You know, I'm coming out of my office and I'm I'm going to get into my car and Jensen, you know, comes hobbling down the street and says to me, you better be careful. And I said, what? what? He said, Jimmy Couture is really upset about all those things you were saying about me, obviously, to Sammy Annarino. And the moment he said that, I, I kind of exploded. And I grabbed him and in any way, probably about 262.70. I just took him and I threw him against the wall. And I said to him, you piece of shit. I said, my friends are killing your friends. Don't ever threaten me. And, you know, I, I think he pissed in his pants. And with that, I just I just left. I'm minding my own business. I go about whatever I'm doing. That same night, Jimmy Katura was found dead. He had got shot four times in the back of the head over there on Grand Avenue, probably about a mile or so, not even a mile or so from, you know, where this took place. You can imagine what Jensen told anybody and everybody afterwards. I had nothing to do with that. When Jensen saw me like a day or two after that, when I was up there at the courthouse up in up in uh, Evanston, when he came running down the street and he, and he said, you know, Bob, Bob, he said, you know, when I told you, when I told you, Jimmy, I was talking about Couture, not Jimmy Catrone. I was talking about, you know, he, there's a lawyer in his office with a name similar to that. So Eddie Jensen, I had just said to him, my friends are killing your friends. And, and the guy that supposedly is upset because, you know, I'm saying bad things about Jensen. Uh, that's what built up my reputation, I'm sure, out there in the bad guy world that I was involved in these, you know, that I was involved in some way. This was the fourth person that got killed after having lunch or dinner with me. And from what I can gather, just scanning around on the internet, these guys were involved in what was called uh, the chop shop era, Chicago crime. I'm sure they were involved in a lot of different things, but it seemed like there was a chop shop war going on. The restaurant, the restaurant Greco's out there, unbelievably powerful. That was what happened was Artie Greco was a bookmaker I represented. When Artie was in the feds were watching him because he was a major bookmaker and, and I had been dealing with him for years and making a lot of money off him. He wanted to open up a restaurant out there. When you say out there, where's out there? I think 3020 West uh, 95th Street, Evergreen Park, just outside Chicago. Just outside Chicago, there was this huge restaurant. It was a restaurant and in front of it was a liquor, was a delicatessen. It was a place called Bruno's. It looked like a barn uh, that uh, that was for sale. And Artie was talking about opening up a restaurant. And, and I felt this could make us, you know, some good money because Artie's got a lot of friends, all, mostly, you know, mob friends and all. He was in, a bookmaker involved with a lot of the, uh, the organized crime people. We wound up opening up this restaurant. We bought the place what we did was we bought it supposedly for 200000 but I gave Bruno 50000 in cash. And when we opened it up after a period of time, what we decided to do was get rid of the liquor store and expand it into a much, much bigger restaurant. And we fixed it up real nice. We had I already had a lot of his friends that were involved as builders and carpenters and all the rest of it. We made it look like a, like an Italian garden, and it became one of the most popular restaurants in the city with all kinds of mob people coming there. The the uh, the mayors and the towns would come there. The uh, the cardinal would come there, police personnel. But what we would also have there 
it was real close to the chop where the, all the chop shops were going on the south side. And on any given day, we had tables full of these chop shop guys, the guys that were, you know, stealing the cars and the guys that were chopping them up. And we also had another table, the guys that were killing them and the guys that were extorting them. And which, which I always thought was so bizarre is, you know, you see these guys, they're passing drinks back and forth. And yet... They know they know which is which. These are mob guys that are extorting them. These are guys that uh, and these are guys that are killing them. And they're all at the same place in this restaurant. Uh, but uh, no, as I say, that's it was an unbelievable world world in itself over there. I was running around. I was running around socially with what they called the Young Turks, the ones that were doing the whole new deal. When Giancana went to Mexico and uh, while he was gone, that was the time that they started the whole new operation with the mob. It was no longer the way it was where different ones had different territories. Uh, this is when they started the whole new deal where everybody grabbed people and they belonged to them. Uh, and everybody had to pay street tax. And when they did it the, the new way, it, it could not be any territory because, you know, because robbers robbed everywhere, burglars burglarized everywhere, car thieves stole cars everywhere, not just in a certain neighborhood. When when somebody belonged when somebody belonged to you, his name was given. And I was there at I was there at the club with Marco when these different mob bosses would come and they'd come almost every day and they'd sit down and they'd write down who belonged to them now. This is somebody that's paying me right now and nobody can touch him. He can do he can do whatever and I collect I collect whatever I collect, you know, from him and he belongs to me. That was the deal. And that was the deal that was done. And that's why they wound up killing Jimmy the bomber because he didn't he, he didn't want to accept it the way it was and he tried to extort people that were already on somebody else's list. But everybody that was committing crimes had to pay everybody. We're talking bookmakers. We're talking fences. We're talking burglars. We're talking robbers. We're t- yeah. every everybody. If you were committing a crime, you were paying the mob. If you're a, if you're a major criminal, yes, you paid street tax. And, and and I'll tell you what was so unbelievable. Like with burglars, when the burglars, when somebody went out and committed a burglary, he had to pay them a percentage of of whatever he got. But he also had to use mob fences. He couldn't go anyplace else. He had to use a mob fence and the mob fence had to pay. And and so the only ones who really made any money off any of these things, the major money were, were the mobsters because they would get an end from the guy. They would get an, an end from from uh, whatever the burglar got. They would get an end from whatever the and they had to they had to use uh, the mob the mob fences and the fence would be paying them with the gambling. It was even better. What they would do is they would grab people that were they were booking, uh, and they would t- they would give them a choice: either you become partners with us, or it's a fifty fifty partnership. In terms, first of all, they would charge them, you know, maybe like a twenty five thousand fee or something, and now uh, they could become partners with them, where they would call all their bets into a clearinghouse. They they would call all their bets in to them. They're responsible for all those bets. If somebody who made the bet, you know, didn't pay them, they still had to pay the mob. And yet if somebody didn't pay them, they couldn't go out and collect from that person. They had a they had to have the mob go out and do the collecting and the mob would then take half that money again. And if they if they went broke and they did at times during like the baseball season years ago, now they got the money, they had to pay juice on that money. It was unbelievable the way they had organized organized everything. And I was 
I was running around with those people that were doing it, you know, with the uh, with these guys that are doing the actual collecting. Over time, when they trusted you or began to trust you, did they tell you more of how it worked? I'd be sitting there having dinner when they're when when they're doing all their business. Or I'd be hanging at the club. I'd be over at the club all the time collecting my money. The deal the deal I had with Marco in particular, I got $1,000 for every case uh, that I handled. And I found out later he was charging 2500 from these people. Uh, but anyhow, I got $1,000 for every case. And Marco was pretty much running a majority of the gambling throughout the entire, not just the city, but around the suburbs and all there too. The cases would take me about 10 minutes. I go into, I go into court at 20, at, uh, at uh, 11th and state. That's where the courthouse was. And a lot of times I would have, you know, one, sometimes two, sometimes three cases. You know, when I go in there, I'd be out of there within about an hour. Cause I'd be the first case called. I'd be I'll always be the first case called. And, uh, and I'd pick up like 3000 for that. So I'd be, I'd be going to the clubhouse, uh, probably two, three times a week, you know, to collect my money. And I'd hang around there because they'd be playing cards and stuff there. And I'd just what, what be was, What was the clubhouse? It was on Grand Avenue, about maybe about two miles west of the city. Uh, Austin. It was just west of Austin Boulevard on Grand. And this is where, this is where uh, they had tables in there where they played cards all the time. And, and uh, they had, a, in fact, they had a kitchen set up in there where they had a woman coming in and cooking. And there were always, you know, 40, 50 people hanging around in there. And Marco had a, a side office, you know, a section built. It was all walled in. And that's where, you know, that's where you'd have these other guys coming in every day. And they'd, they'd go in there and they'd sit down and discuss all the business. They were setting up when they were setting up this thing and, and I had just happened to be with them at the very time they were beginning it where everybody was, uh, you know, giving, you know, okay, I have, these are a list of my names. In fact, when I, I showed the FBI how they were doing that when I pretended like I was running a gambling operation. So they would hit me for street tax and, and uh, Marco would tell me, you know, we, well, you know, now if you get grabbed by somebody else, you just give them my name and, and there won't be a problem. And if there is a problem, you tell me who's giving you the problem and we'll take care of it. It was it was all organized. And it got to the point, too, where in the courthouses, you had policemen referring, you know, when people would get arrested, you know, the, some of these police detectives, they would get paid for referring. You know, in other words, here's a guy who got arrested. Check and see if he's on somebody's list, and if he's not, you know, you can grab him and you can collect it, and you'll get a bounty. There was like a bounty in these people. Uh, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm confused by that whole. Let's go back there. So, a de- detectives, CPD detectives, Chicago Police Department detectives were yes. they arrest on- somebody? They arrest they arrest somebody and charge him with a burglary, a major burglary. What they would do was they would have a, they would be connected with one of the different groups and they would contact him and talk to him and say so and so just got arrested. Check and see if he if, if he's on anybody's list. And if he's not, you grab him and uh, you'll grab him and you and you'll extort him. Either he starts paying you or something will happen. That's when they were killing those people initially. Uh, they they weren't just beating them up. They were killing people initially to you know to set an example to send a message out. So. So the detective would, you know, would give this name and if he already belonged to somebody, okay, so be it. 
And if he didn't, they would grab him. He now belongs to them. The dete- and the detectives were taking money for providing this information to the mobsters. Yeah. So detective sure. would say, hey, here's uh, the detective calls a mobster and says, do you know anyone that's got Steve Jones? They say, no. Well, you can have him. So the mobster would then go to Steve Jones and go, you got to pay me a street tax. And the mobster would pay the detective money for providing the information. Yeah. Well, it's, it's not quite like that. They, I guarantee you, they wouldn't pick up the phone. They wouldn't, they wouldn't call them. They would, they would obviously, if they had any sense at all, they would go meet them. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be, they, it'd be not, not as literal as I was stating it, but the, the detectives were providing information to the mobsters. They would give the, they would give the name. And this person, you know, who's who's connected with the mob, tell his boss, here, here's somebody, uh, here's somebody. Well, let's 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 do the example like with uh, Elmwood Park crew. The big boss of the crew was uh, originally Jackie Cerrone, but then it became Johnny DeFranzo, uh and and Marco was the street crew street crew boss. So one of, you know, one of the detectives would know somebody, you know, one of the people from, you know, there might be in, in their crews, they probably had about maybe 200 people uh, in their crews. And some were policemen. Uh, you know, some would be a lot of them would be city workers because they were they they controlled the whole city and they would they had thousands of their people and on, on city jobs in uh, county jobs, not just the city, but the county. Also, they would contact, let's say, Paulie Tanzillo who was just one of the, you know, one of the crew. And Paulie was a detective himself. Somebody else would contact, you know, Paulie and say, you know, we we made this arrest or Paulie made the arrest. He would get a hold of Marco and he'd say, you know, here's somebody. Uh, he might even have two or three names of, you know, different people that were arrested and uh, check and see if they belong to somebody. And if not, he knows that Marco then will grab them. And Marco would then, is supposed to be honest and tell him, He's not with anybody else, and here's so much money. Or he'll say there there was somebody else. No, they're already they've already been grabbed. But what you had too, not just the police over in the courthouse at 26 in California, you had those clerks that were there. The clerks were contacting people. Uh, you you had the the court sergeant there. He'd be contacting people. You had all kinds of people part of the court system that would be contacting people and giving out these names. Uh, and that, that's how they would find, that's how they would find a lot of these people. It, it was, it was all a business. Yeah. And everyone's I taking mean, a cut every way they can by providing information. Before we wrap up here, it's impossible to put a number on this, but what was your sense of how many members of the Chicago police department and whatever their capacity was, were involved with organized crime? Very, very small percentage. Uh, you know, as I say, the, uh, in our club, about 12, 14 in our crew itself. And when I say our crew, because I spent most of my time in the business there with the Elmwood Park crew. But what they had to even more, even more than police, sheriffs, dozens and dozens of sheriffs. They had complete control over the sheriff's department. The Cook County Sheriff, who's got thousands of people. Does you know, that still exist? Is there still a Cook County oh, yeah. Sheriff Department? It doesn't the all fall over. It doesn't all fall under Illinois no, State Police. No, it's a separate. Oh no, it's a separate, separate unit. In fact, Johnny DeFranzo openly would be over there at Maywood Racetrack with the with the uh, with the sheriff. We're the ones who made the sheriff, uh, Dvorak. 
Dvorak was uh, was the sheriff. He was a so-called Democrat, became a Republican only to run because it was a countywide office. But they had, in fact, it was it was ironic. I remember going into a courthouse one time out there in Maywood, and when I go in there, I see one of the guys that's over there, one of the burglars, and he's there as a sheriff now. And they had just made him a sheriff that week. And I walk in and he said, and he, he says to me, he was the one standing there having the people go through the metal detectors. And he says to me, Bob, can you, can you believe this? Look at this. Neil, when I say they controlled everything, they controlled everything. A reminder to follow us so you know when the next episode drops. And please send us feedback by following me on Twitter at Neil Edelstein. That's N-E-A-L-E-D-E-L-S-T-E-I-N. Any and all feedback is welcome. We especially like constructive criticism. A reminder to stay connected for episode six. We discuss a murder at a jewelry store, the hillbilly mafia's activities in Chicago, and Tony Spilatro. Here's the Morris Code.